Why are young people not interested in religion? We used to just go to church and everything would be there. Your worship music would be there on a Sunday morning. The sermon would be there on a Sunday morning. Your community is there on a Sunday morning. And now there's so many other places to find those things. You can listen to a sermon on a podcast, for example. You can listen to the new Hillsong album for the worship music. You can find that community in, uh, you know, online in like a Facebook group with people that you share interests and affinities with. From Religion News Service, this is Belief. I'm Bill Baker. Much has been made of the increasing number of people who don't identify with a religion at all. Statistics behind millennial flight from church and religion is also a big topic in the news. But what's behind these numbers? To explore some of the less measurable influences, religion news reporter Emily McFarlane Miller joins Beliefs producer Jay Woodward. Emily McFarland Miller, welcome back to Beliefs. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. A conversation that's going on everywhere. Boy, you can't get away from this conversation. Is what do millennials think about religion? What do they think about spirituality? The churches are losing members. They're blaming young people. Who do we even mean by millennials? Right. No, and that's that's a great place to start because I think when most people think of millennials, they're thinking those dang kids and their phones. Uh, the Pew Research puts them this year in 2019 between the ages of, I want to say, 23 and 38. So this is really your, your, um, your young adults, your young working professionals, this is the age that you traditionally think of as entering the workforce, getting maybe even like mid-career at this point, buying houses, having families. It's, it's much older than I think people generally think. When they think millennials, what they're really thinking of is Gen Z, which I think Pew puts between like 23 and 7. So if we take that premise, that means they're born somewhere between let's say 1981, 1979 and 81 to about 1996. Does that strike us as functionally something that we could talk about, those people? Yeah, that's close enough. Now that we know who these millennials are, why are we worried that they're not in church? So the the big trend story with millennials has been the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. When the Pew Religious Landscape Survey came out in 2015, the, the big sort of survey of millennials and religion, it found that more than one-third of millennials described themselves as nuns or religiously unaffiliated. So they're less involved in organized religion than generations before them, even at the same age, and they're not really returning to church as they get older, because as you pointed out, the traditional thought is, oh, once you start settling down, having a family, you go back to, you know, the religious tradition you were raised in to raise your own children in that tradition. So we're just, we're not seeing that as much, at least according to the numbers with millennials. And um, one of the things we were hearing at the Religion News Association conference this September is uh, the spiritual but not religious category continues to grow, and that's not because people are becoming more spiritual, but because they're dropping the organized religion. That's really the big trend and the, the, the thing that we, we're talking a lot about when it comes to millennials and then religion and spirituality. So there's a general drift away from organized religion. I believe Paul Rauschenbusch of Interfaith Youth Corps has described a certain relationship as being perhaps there is still the same level of community, but there's not the same desire to interact with authority. Mm. I think he used different language, but mm. it's the relationship between community and authority that keeps these millennials, these mm. kids, out of 
churches and into other expressions of either faith or spirituality? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, some, that's definitely something that I've heard a lot in my reporting from the ex-evangelical movement, which is people who grew up in evangelical Christian circles and then later later left that, that faith. And a lot of folks within that movement have cited the, the real harm that they feel was, was done because of people in leadership positions or because of harmful theologies. I don't know if that I've seen, I haven't really seen a lot of numbers and and data to support that sort of across the board. One thing that I think is a really interesting trend is what Casper Terkyle at Harvard Divinity School calls unbundling. So this is traditionally, you think of religion as sort of a bundle. You have your community and your rituals and your meaning making all sort of packaged within the bundle of a single religion. And millennials are sort of more likely to pick and choose different aspects of those things from maybe different religious traditions or even things that we wouldn't traditionally consider a sacred space. You might go and find those things at a soul cycle or a CrossFit. A lot's been written about how those function as uh, sort of sacred spaces. And that's not limited to millennials, but it's characteristic for the, for the generation. I think we were talking the other day about the Star Wars and other fandoms. You can find those aspects there. You have the built-in community of, of people you share something in common with. You have the ritual of going to see the new Star Wars movie when it opens on you know opening day at midnight, or dressing up in costumes and going to a convention and meaning making like you know the, the different lessons and 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 things you can sort of take from the stories much in the same way as sort of a a sacred text which reminds me I mean to Kyle also co-hosts this podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and I I did a story earlier this year I went to a taping of the podcast and uh, got to talk to some of the people who were there it was an entirely millennial audience and I talked to some people in the audience who were you know, identified as nuns, but they really liked looking at the text of Harry Potter as sort of sacred stories. These were the stories that they had grown up with. I mean, you might think of growing up in Sunday school and you're getting told the stories of Noah's Ark and thing with like flannel graphs. Well, millennials have grown up with the stories of Harry Potter and and reading those. Um, And so sort of going through those stories and finding meaning in those stories and applying different Jewish and Christian spiritual practices was something very meaningful to them. And I heard this from nuns who were there. I also interviewed a woman who who is a Christian pastor who said the same thing. So I think that kind of goes to that idea of the unbundling, where you can find meaning. You, you might be a Christian pastor, but you might also be finding meaning in in these non-sacred texts that, that you grew up with as well. That's just got to be horrifying for a traditionalist, though. <laughs> I mean, truly, truly heretical to be thinking that, like, yeah, you want to just... I mean, it's all about tradition and mm-hmm. ritual, and these things are a part of this religious tradition, and these things are not a part of mm-hmm. this religious tradition. So bringing in some yoga, and let's talk some, you know, like, let's do some smudging mm-hmm. in the chapel, and, you know, the start of the cross-pollination of all of these spiritual practices must really upset some in other generations. Am I reading that right? Well, I think I think that's one of the things that 
that we're hearing a lot as we discuss the shift in millennials, that there are people who are concerned about the, the fact that people are leaving organized religion. But there's also, you know, a lot of really interesting things that are happening. People who are sort of thinking outside the box and how they might be able to engage millennials in new ways. There was just a Barna survey that came out looking at millennials and spirituality and what was important to them. Barna is a Christian uh, research group, and so um, some of that is looking at, well, what is important to millennials? What are they looking for when it comes to religion and spirituality? And how might religion incorporate those things in, in ways that are going to meet what millennials are looking for that's maybe different than, than they have in the past. So I don't think it necessarily needs to alarm anybody belonging to an organized religion. A short story that maybe my mother won't appreciate me sharing. <laughs> she has always described herself as a recovering Catholic. Mm. Is it possible that we're looking at the millennials and ascribing this phenomena of them leaving the church and ascribing responsibility to their beliefs? Or is it possible that they were brought up by people who started feeling more ambivalent about church? As the world got bigger, mm -hmm. the generation that brought up the millennials might actually have something to do with mm. this trend. Well, I think that's an interesting question. And community is something that I hear a lot when I'm reporting on millennials and how different religious groups are reaching out to them. And I specifically, I cover Protestantism for RNS, so usually that's within Christianity. And recently I did a story about this trend of dinner churches, where instead of having a service and then maybe a potluck after, the meal that you share is the service. And this, the one that I went to in, in Chicago opened with breaking the bread like you do in communion. And then there was time just to eat a regular dinner and have conversation. And then there was a little more guided conversation around a scripture passage. And then uh, it ended with a time of prayer and drinking drinking the wine like you do in communion, so sort of bookended by those elements of communion. And when I talked to everybody who was there about why this appealed to them, it was that community aspect, that that was something that they you know didn't find in more traditional church services, that they still might have these Christian beliefs, but the traditional church services weren't really doing it for them, that they weren't finding that level of community of just having that time to engage and talk and, and build relationships with people that they do in, in a service structure more like this. So I think it, it is interesting. It's interesting to see if, if that, you know, maybe that is a reaction to the way previous generations did church. I'm not sure. Let's look at what the th other things that happened culturally for the people that were born anywhere between 1980 and 1996. Mm -hmm. The rise of television. There was always television. There was MASH. There was, you know, these things. But then you start to, in the beginning of the 80s, you get into the Cosby show. Mm -hmm. And this becomes television that is, maybe this is my personal bias, it mm -hmm. seems to get everywhere. And it becomes bigger. It becomes bigger than just Howdy Doody mm -hmm. or... Uh, Magnum P.I. You've got Seinfeld the, from 89 to 98, The Simpsons that started in 89 and is still continuing, mm -hmm. Friends, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The internet itself doubled from 70 million users in America to 140 million users in the year between 1997 and 98. The strength of technology. There are so many things that might also be taking the attention mm -hmm. of the people away. Mm -hmm. If 
you're on the prairie mm-hmm. in 1817, mm-hmm. the Bible will be the only book in the room. Mm-hmm. And now there's many more things. Mm-hmm. Is it potentially something as simple as sharing bandwidth? Not to say, like, to look at nuns and say, they're not going to church, what are they believing in? That's going apples to apples. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's just apples to oranges. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're thinking they want to be uh, tennis players, Mm -hmm. they want to be programmers, Mm -hmm. things that are competing for the time and the the belief systems. Mm One thing that I've heard, and we'll, we'll start with sort of the TV analogy that you're using. So it used to be that you had just a handful of channels, and so everyone's sort of watching the same thing, and you have sort of this common cultural language of you're all going to be watching the same newscast, you're all basically getting the same news stories, you're all watching Howdy Doody or MASH, I guess. But then, you know, cable comes along, and all of a sudden there's so many more options, and it's not like everybody's watching the annual re-airing of The Wizard of Oz at the same time anymore, because there's probably a 24-hour marathon of just The Wizard of Oz on some cable channel. And then you get even more sort of like split up with the the internet then entering the picture. So now it's not just, oh, I I went from watching the nightly newscast on network television to, oh, now I have three or four different channels where I can watch 24-hour news to, now I can get news tailored to all sorts of different interests and political leanings and religious leanings online from a million different sources. And where I'm going with this is that one of the things I've heard from people is sort of the same idea of this unbundling idea where you used to just go to church and everything would be there. Your worship music would be there on a Sunday morning. The sermon would be there on a Sunday morning. Your community is there on a Sunday morning. And now there's so many other places to find those things. You can listen to a sermon on a podcast for example. You can listen to the new Hillsong album for the worship music. You can find that community in, uh, you know, online in like a Facebook group with people that you share interests and affinities with. So I think part, part of that could be driving sort of this unbundling and people looking for things outside of organized religion that they used to maybe get there. Unbundling as an idea has a dark side too, right? It's got this, um, it's got overtones of cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. where there's not a a deep understanding. Yoga is a really great Mm -hmm. thing to be able to point Mm -hmm. to with that, where there is an an immense adoption Mm -hmm. of yoga in the West Mm -hmm. and it has been secularized completely from its Hindu tradition mm-hmm. and and the meditations that come, mm-hmm. you know, the mindfulness as opposed to meditation. Yeah. What is the danger in the unbundling beyond the fact that it's um, it's you know it's this messy slow cooker version mm-hmm. of all of these religions? Is that even bad, or is the is the cultural appropriation really a, a danger zone? That's a that's a great question. Yoga is a great example. There's also anecdotally, I mean, you're seeing a lot of spiritual practices associated with. Wicca or neo-pagan or new age traditions becoming really trendy right now. BuzzFeed consulted on this subscription box now where you can get crystals delivered to you monthly where you set your intentions with every new moon. And I've heard I've heard people describe this as sort of Instagram spirituality or something because you know it has a certain aesthetic. I think figure skater Adam Rippon was talking about bringing all of his crystals with him to the last Winter Olympics. So I mean this is sort of a trendy thing you can go on Etsy or go to a trendy store and you can get your 
sage bundle or your your crystal wand or whatever. One of my very favorite articles ever, I think, on the Religion Beat was written by my colleague at Religion News Service, Aisha Khan, uh, looking at the cultural appropriation inherent in all of this. Because sage bundles and Palo Santo are trendy, but they're also lifted from their context within indigenous spiritual traditions. And Wicca may have this cool Instagram aesthetic, but that's also someone's spiritual beliefs. It's not just something cool and trendy to them. It has deep personal meaning. So I think that's a great question to ask and for people to explore as they're kind of doing this unbundling. And I would encourage everyone to to read Aisha's article because it, it takes a really good look at that and some of the different complaints from people in the community about that. So looking at your tea leaves, <laughs> uh, not to borrow a very tired <laughs> metaphor from the whole conversation, but what does this trend point to? Is there more untethering from deep traditional, Mm -hmm. or is there possibly always going to be a tether to uh, Catholic, to Methodist, to Jewish, Mm -hmm. to Islam, to all of these traditions? This will be just kind of um, branches on the tree, but it will always come back to the trunk in a way. Or is it just inevitable that the unbundling will continue? I think it's a great question, and I think that's what we're all sort of in the middle of watching and reporting on and looking to see how this will change religion and where it will go. But there are, I mean, there are a lot of groups doing interesting things to engage millennials that are sort of outside the box, and one that I think nearly everybody has written about, and including myself, is this group called Nuns and Nuns. So it's N-O-N-E-S and N-U-N-S, so both the religiously unaffiliated and Catholic sisters. And they there are chapters around the country, and each of them looks a little different, but they bring together these two groups. And it's not for the purpose, necessarily, of converting the religiously unaffiliated, but because these two groups share a lot in common that you might not you know, immediately think of. There's the focus and value on community. There's a shared interest in social justice. And there's also both groups hold a lot of space for questions about spirituality. So just a lot of interesting things are being done around thinking outside the box, engaging millennials in sort of the the ways they're looking for religion and spirituality. And be really interesting to see where that goes in the future. Emily McFarland-Miller, thank you for your reporting and thank you for talking to us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Our guest this week, religion news reporter Emily McFarland-Miller. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Production assistance from Jonathan Smith. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.